0: Good morning. It is a uh, privilege to share God's word. Um, today I selected a book from the Old Testament, the book of Haggai. Uh, one of the reasons, obviously, is because I love it so much. I taught it a couple of times. One time I gave a 12-hour talk on this particular book, and I just, I felt that I just uh, barely scratched the surface. So the problem with me in the last week uh, was not to decide what to say, it's to decide what to cut out. Uh, With that, and I'm glad Super Bowl is not today, (laughs) because you will hate me very much, because the sermon is going to be long. Uh, without further ado, let's take a look at your page, uh, bulletin, page 4. Let's read the Word of God. In the second year of Darius the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Thus says the Lord of hosts. These people say the time has not come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. It is a time for you yourself to dwell in your panelled houses while this house lies in ruins. Now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have so much and harvest little. You eat but you never have enough. You drink But you never have your fill. You close yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages does so to put them into a bag of holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways, go up to the hills, and bring wood and build a house, that I may take pleasure in it, and that I may be glorified, said the Lord. You look for much, and behold, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house that lies in ruins. While each of you busies himself with his own house, therefore the heaven above you have withheld the dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I have called for a drought on the land and the hills on the grain, on the new wine, the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and on all their laborers. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshadak, the high priest with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God in the words of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the Lord. Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke to the people with the Lord's message. I am with you, declared the Lord. And the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, the God, on the 20th 24 days of the month in the sixth month in the second year of Darius the king. Wow, that's a long passage. Um, Book of Haggai is the second shortest book in the Old Testament and in it is loaded with uh, messages or very valuable lessons that we can learn. So today, I'm not going to go through the passage verse by verse. We just simply don't have time. But I'm just going to work our way through through three basic points, the people, the message, and the response. Now, before we move on, okay, there's one question that we need to uh, touch on. Um, A little bit of background first, obviously. Uh, Haggai, he was the prophet of God. And the people of Israel, because of their disobedience, God sent them away. So basically, there were three exiles. And on the last exile, uh, Zerubbabel is one of the person who uh, went with the last group. And they went there because god punished them now when we get to the part of uh, haggai we are probably looking at 520 bc somewhere around there now they had been in the land of exile roughly about 7 years 70 years now they received a command from god to go back to jerusalem to rebuild the temple So first of all, we need to ask the question, why God looked at this particular event to rebuild the temple so important? So this is the first thing I would like to touch on before we actually move into the text. So why is it so important to rebuild the temple? Well, if you remember the first temple which was built by uh, King Solomon, that one was destroyed uh, roughly around 586 B.C. by the Babylonians. Now, because of the temple was destroyed there's basically there's no center of worship there is no place for people for the people to actually see the glory of God and there's no worship so God in his divine will he wants his people to go back to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple now the purpose behind rebuilding the temple is basically related to the honor of God The temple had to be rebuilt because the honor of God was at stake. Now, all the nations around Israel knows that they have a God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham. And since their nation was destroyed, that means their God is very little. You see, in the ancient time, not only when nations are fighting among each other, what they believe is that their gods behind the scenes are fighting among each other. So since Israel was destroyed, that obviously the God of Israel is a little God. It's a small God. It's so small that he cannot protect his people. So one of the reasons why I believe God wanted the Israelites to go back to build the temple is his honor. Another point behind that is his covenants. His covenant love, because he had made this covenant with, the, uh, with Abraham and his uh, descendants, that the covenant has to be shown through a tangible way of worship. And the only place that can happen is the temple. So this is why I believe it is important for the Israelites, or for, the, for, the, for the Jews at the time, to go back to rebuild the temple because God's honor is at stake. All right, so let's quickly move into the three points that I have outlined. The first point, the people, who are they? Well, let's start with the writer of the book, Haggai. He's the author of the book. Haggai was the first prophet, what we call the post-exilic period, meaning after they were Uh, In exile, and they returned to Jerusalem, and that began a period what we call post exilic period. He was the first prophet during this period, and uh, scholars told us that uh, Haggai was probably in his 80s when he was called by God to deliver his message. So, we have here a prophet. God sent Haggai to send a message to the people and the two leaders. Next, we see another character called Zerubbabel. He is the son of Shealtiel, and he's also a governor of Judah. Now, Zerubbabel was actually the grandson of the last king, King Jehoshakim. So basically, he actually has a kingship line. In other words, he's the heir of David's throne. So his, his, his position, his, his, his background is, uh, is, is pretty uh, uh, loyal, uh, royal. So Rebobo is actually the heir for the David's throne. Now, obviously, they can't have another king because they were destroyed. And his governorship was probably appointed by the king, Persa. Another person that we notice the text tell us is Joshua. He is the son. He was the son of Jehoshadak, who was ex- exiled to ba- Babylon around 586 BC. Now, according to the genealogy in Chronicle six, he actually—I'm uh, sorry—I just um, according to Chronicles, uh, he was a he was he was a priest. His uh, his predecessor. Uh, his. Um, uh, forefathers were all priests. So Joshua was a priest. So right off the start, we see a prophet. We see a king. We see a uh, priest. We can see how God has arranged all three of this type of people to bring his people, his elect back to the Jerusalem and to rebuild the temple so they, they, can, they can restore their worship. Now, these three leaders, while they enjoy a temporary success, eventually, if you continue to read the book of Malachi, you will see that they actually backslide again. Now, that speaks to our human sinful nature and also the inadequacy of human leadership. That will point us to the ultimate prophet, king, priest, and uh, king, prophet, and priest, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And he will bring us back to God. He will not fail. He will not fail in terms of bringing us to God and restoring our relationship with God. Now, the last character we want to look at is the people. Who are they? Well, They probably contain some of the first generation who went to Babylon and also the second and third generation who actually were born in Babylon and grew up there and have their roots in Babylon. In other words, these are the people who actually don't have any idea how Jerusalem looks like. Okay? And they have no idea what the temple is, how it looks like, looked like at one time, and the worship of God and have actually... No idea of all this. But the word that we found in the Bible who described them require a little bit of attention. If you look at verse 12 and also verse 14, I believe, the word remnant appeared twice. Now, the word in itself probably means leftovers. In the old testament, The remnant idea is a recurrent theme. Now, this word not only means that leftovers or people didn't get killed. This word actually appeared very early on. If you read Genesis 45, verse 7, Joseph spoke to his brother in this way. He said, God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So from this, we actually see the beginning of the idea of remnant. So this word actually has a threefold meaning. First, those who survive the judgment and the exile. In Jeremiah 5.18 it says, yet even in those days declares the Lord, I will not destroy you completely. So first the idea behind the word remnant is that they are the survivors. They survive God's judgment. They survive the exile. Now this is not merely a physical survival. It has a deeper meaning. Second meaning is that these remnants they are faithful to God. Then later on we can see the word stir in the text. Basically, mean arouse or awaken. And that was the work of God. So the remnants are the faithful ones toward God. Why are they faithful? It's because God chose them, God saved them, God protected them. And the third sense of this word has to do with eschatological renewal and recreation. Let me read you a text from Zechariah 8. He says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the East and the West. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem. They will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. So in this context, the remnant is described as those who got saved and bring back and reclaim in the future. So to sum it up, the word remnant basically means in every generation, God saved some people for himself. To manifest his redemptive plan so that these people actually we can call, in other words, elects, or maybe in the New Testament time, our time, The church as well So this concept of remnant Basically is to Show forth God's faithfulness in every Generation He will protect certain group Of people Let them go through trials Yes But eventually they will be saved Now We just quickly survey The background of the people The characters I'm going to touch on uh, quickly, really quickly, about their captivity. Now, they were sent to captivity uh, to uh, Babylon for 70 years. And because of their disobedience, they were forewarned in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. I'm not going to read the text. It's too long to read it. uh, Deuteronomy 28, 15 to 68, or Leviticus 26, 14 to 39. You can go home and read it for yourself. God already forewarned, if you don't obey my commands, this will happen to you. So they did, finally, because of the continual disobedience, finally they were destroyed. The, Jerusalem was destroyed, the temple was destroyed. Now, at the current situation, at the beginning of the text that we read, we mentioned earlier, is roughly about 520 B.C., and there had been 50,000 or so Jews went back to Jerusalem, and they began to work on the... Re, uh, the reconstruction project. Unfortunately, the enemy got a hold of the plan and they started to attacking them and that put a stop to the work. So this is why in the beginning of the text, God began to stir up the prophet to go and talk to the people and give them the message telling them, you need to begin. Now before we move on to the second point of message, I'd like to bring out one interesting thing is that the history of the uh, Israelites and our spiritual journey are very much alike. If you look at the enslavement in Egypt and the rescue from the evil King Pharaoh and then their journey through the promised land and failure to, come, uh, to follow God's command and leading to their wandering in the wilderness and then eventually taking off the promised land And then more disobedience leading to the exiles. And then their return, the recovery, and then the backsliding. Now, all of these, do you find yourself in it? All of this experience that they had is pretty much our journey as well. So keep that in mind when we go through the second part, the message. God says, consider your ways or give careful thoughts to your ways. In Haggai, this phrase appeared four times. Chapter 1, verse 5, verse 7, chapter 2, verse 15 and 18. What that basically means is you need to do some serious thinking about you and your situation. Socrates says, the unexamined life is not worth living. Self-examination is probably a discipline that is largely missing in a Christian journey today. We don't actually periodically sit down, uh, have a personal retreat to think about myself, our, ourselves, to think about uh, our presence, our work, and everything. Had they done it, they would have found four problems. Let's go through this problem really quickly. If the people went back to Jerusalem... Okay, have a regular self examination. They would find the following four problems. The first problem is they have an inverted priority. And this inverted priority can happen to anyone, even to committed Christians. Now, remember, they were once very passionate about going back to Jerusalem left everything behind, uproot the whole family, went back to Jerusalem, go through various hardships, and commit themselves to building the temple. Somehow, the work got stopped, and then life moved on. They began to concentrate on building their own houses and taking care of their own family, while the house of the Lord lay ruins. Can you see this in us? I've talked to a couple of people in the past. Actually, it's more than a couple of people. One time, I have a brother who went to my house. We had a chat. And I asked him, how are you doing lately? He said, I'm doing fine. Okay, that's a very general answer. Then I probe a little more. Then I find out that he wasn't going to church. That's not fine to me. But he said he's fine. He's not going to church. He's not serving. Then I asked him, Why? And he said, well, it's too much politics in the church. Uh, it's, it's, it's a bad place. I mean, I, I, can, I can study Bible at home. I can watch uh, some videos and worship God myself at home. So even, and I knew this brother, he used to be committed, really committed. So the first problem is that we, when we have an inverted priority, this problem is not for the beginners. It's not for the new christian This problem can happen to old Christians, Christians who have been in Christ for a long time. When life moves on, a lot of time without deliberately rebelling God against God, sometimes we will drift into putting our own priority above God's. And when the conscience nags us, we will come up with excuses. That leads us to the second point. When we have an inverted priority, we can always come up with reasons or excuses for our lifestyle. Look at verse 2. The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Now, they do not oppose the idea of rebuilding the temple. It's just that where well, is not time? based on their own assessment, they say it's not time. Well, maybe the econ- economic is not good, job is scarce, income is low, inflation kicks in. I just, I just can't afford to do what I used to do anymore. Again, do you see ourselves in this? We are all prone to make up excuses for why we are not obedient To put God first with our time, talent, and money, he entrusts us. Sometimes we even use a scripture to support our action. For example, the Bible says if a man doesn't provide for his own family, he's worse than an unbeliever and has denied the faith. Well, I'm just following what the Bible says. I'm taking care of my family. Nothing wrong with that. Now, these excuses show one thing. That is, he, this person, he's not consciously pursuing the kingdom of God and the righteousness of God. James Boyce once said, All reversal of priorities is an act of idolatry because it places the creation in the position of the creator. Well, what does that mean? That means when you have an inverted priority Brothers and sisters, you are sinning. You are sinning because you put create uh, the creatures in place of the Creator. Problem number three: They would notice that those who have inverted prosperity or inverted priority will lose their spiritual perspective. This is very important. Those who have wrong priorities will eventually lose their spiritual priorities or perspectives. In another word, they will lose the ability to accurately assess reality and himself. If we have an inverted priority, eventually you will end up with a false perspective on all things. Now, why why when we look at the universe, we we see God in the universe, and then the non-believers don't see God in the universe? Why? Same evidence, right? We come up with the answers that God is everywhere, where they say, no, I don't see God. Where, where, Where is God? Same reality, different interpretation. This will happen to you if you have an inverted priority. Eventually, you will end up right there. Six months ago, I, uh, my wife and I went to one of the major cities uh, along the coastline of China. And we usually when we have time, we will visit a church, their Wednesday night prayer meeting service. And this Wednesday, we went there. Before we went there, I got a call from the brother and he said, Hey, Brother, brother Quang, we have a sister. She is demon-possessed. And she went to a church yesterday and asked a pastor and a couple of uh, leaders and elders to pray for her and then cast a demon out. And then, I, I would like to ask her to come see you tonight. Is that okay? I said, sure. I mean, I, I'm not an you know, uh, expert in casting out demons. <laughs> I mean, I had a couple of... Uh, uh, occasions in the past to deal with people who claim to be demon-possessed. So I said, okay, yeah, sure, why not bring her over? So Wednesday night, Wednesday night came. We uh, uh, arrived, Linda and I, and then we had dinner, and then we start talking, and then the brothers and sisters start trickling in, and we start sharing some Bible verses. I remember I was talking, John chapter 3, about the regeneration and so forth, and then this uh, sister came in with her husband. She sat down right in front of me, about six feet away, and then uh, her husband sat to my right. As I began, I, I, Because I, I was in the middle of sharing the Gospel of John, I couldn't just stop, so I just kind of uh, wanted to finish it up, wrap it up. And I noticed that she begins to become really uneasy, just twist and turn, and she would never look me in the eyes. And then finally, she decided to sit on the floor instead of sitting on a chair. And everybody around me said, oh, yeah, here we, here we come, here we come. <laughs> here we come means the devil is, 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 is beginning to work. Oh, yeah, she, she can't listen to truth. She can't listen to Bible. So I said, oh, yeah? So anyway, I quickly, within the like two, three minutes, I wrap up my stirring with the, with the others. Then I turn my attention to her. And I begin to talk to her and then probe. And asking questions. put about 10 minutes or so. And and I said to her, you know, sister, you are not demon-possessed. You know what she said to me? She said, I am. She was convinced she was demon-possessed. And I said, no, you don't. And then I spent the next two hours talking to her and explaining to her why I believe that she doesn't have demon-possessed. The overarching theme was that you, I'm talking to the sister, I said, you have left God on the shelf for a long time. You put God away. She didn't read her Bible. She didn't worship. She didn't do any of the devotion. She completely put God aside. I said, just the life pressure itself is enough to crush you, the demon doesn't have to lift a finger. Because you are so weak, you can't even handle life at all. You are doing swell, killing yourself. Demon doesn't have to lift a finger, and besides the fact that he's much more busier other other places, he needs to put his attention on the big guys, not the little guys. After about two hours of talking, she confessed. We prayed. Three months later, we went back. She became a totally different person. I didn't cast out the demon. There's no demon to cast out. The only thing I need to straighten her out is that your priority was wrong. So losing your priority, your perspective in life will lose your spiritual vision on life. How can I know that? Because he couldn't, they couldn't see the drought, all this description, what is happening to them, is basically the hand of God at work. No matter how hard they try, they still don't have enough to eat, to, 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 to clothe themselves. They can't see that this is the hand of God at work. Now, obviously, I need to clarify one thing. Not all hardships is God's chastening hand. But if you don't have a habit of self-examination, you will know it when it is. Now, another one that I think I should touch on on this point is that we lose our spiritual perspective is that we lose the ability to assess ourselves. The people fail to see that they are really more sinful than they really are. And I believe this is the general problem for each one of us. We fail to see we are actually more sinful than we are. We, we always think we are okay. The brother that says, told me that he's Okay. But he's not going to church. So, his definition of okay and my definition of okay is very different. So, when we have inverted priorities, this is what we're going to end up. Is that we lose the ability to, to see ourselves truly. The first symptom of this problem is that we can't see that we are sinning. Inverted priority is sin. How many of you walk in here before this morning know that? Inverted priority is a sin. And we commit the sin every day, don't don't, don't we? Including myself. They fail to see that this is a sin. Every day that they neglect to rebuild the temple, they're committing sin. Second symptom of this problem is that we overestimate ourselves. We overestimate ourselves. We always think that we are okay. If you look at Matthew chapter 20, it records the mother of the son of the Jebedees, James and John, came and petitioned for her sons to sit at Jesus' left and right hand in his kingdom. And then Jesus replies, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I am to drink? They say to Jesus, We are able. Their self-ambition has blinded them to the true self-assessment. How about Peter? Pastor Michael preached on that last time, last week. When he, said that, when he said that, I will lay down my life for you. Well, I'm sure at that moment, Peter truly thinks that he is willing, ready, and able to die for Christ. And we all know what happened next. This is why Paul says one should not think of himself more highly than he ought to think, Romans 12.3. This is a warning that we really should take to heart. Just because we are strong or healthy today, it doesn't mean that this problem will not fall upon us. The third symptom of this problem is that we have a false view of our relationship with God. This is a deadly one. When Jesus gave the warning to Matthew, in Matthew 7 that some people at the end of their lives would find out that after a lifetime of prophesying, casting out demons, and doing many mighty works in his name would receive the most horrifying words one could hear from our Lord's mouth. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. You know, before that, We see these people say to Jesus, Lord, Lord, which is a way to express intimacy. They have deceived themselves into thinking that they have an intimate relationship with Jesus, but in reality they don't. They think they are very close to Jesus, but in reality they are not. Now that's a scary thought, right? That's a scary thought. What you think in the final analysis doesn't matter. What it matters is at the end what Jesus will say about you and him. What do you think doesn't matter? Remember a long time ago someone teach? There are four yous. The you that you know that you are you the, you, the you that other people know you, and the you that you think other people know you, and the you that you don't know. Sounds deep. <laughs> so, when God is not at the center of our lives, these things can happen to us. The fourth, the fourth problem, I'm going to move on to the fourth problem. Those who put their prosperity above God's house or have an inverted priority will never have what they're after. Because what they're after is not the blessing of God. Now, some these people enjoy some, some measure of success, right? They, they have enough money to put up panel houses, to decorate their houses. That means that they do have things, they do have money to decorate their house. But if we, like a smart Christian, would read Ecclesiastes, King Solomon, who have tried everything himself, money, fame, knowledge, pleasures, and everything a man can dream of, he had it. At the end, what did he say? Vanity of vanities. You know, the problem is, I haven't tried it, so I'm not sure. I might be the exception of the rule. One time I was in a seminary talking to one of the students who was there. And then he and I, I asked the class that, "What are your, what, 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 What's your plan after after seminary? What, what, what are you planning to do?" And then one of, one, of the, one of the students, I at least appreciate his honesty. He said, "Teacher Kwong, I'm not sure I want to go into the ministry yet because I haven't tasted the world yet." This is exactly what he said, told me. I haven't tried it out yet. Then I told him, "Have you read the book of Ecclesiastes?" See, it's not that people don't know in their heads. It's that 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 urge, the desire, the passion to experience these things that I haven't experienced drives them away from God. So if we have a wrong priority, we will seek after things, but they will never satisfy us. I was going to talk, uh, talk a little bit about retirement, but I think my time is short. But um, I believe I, I, I put that question as one of the CG discussion questions about retirement. Because uh, I, I, just, I just leap over the 60 uh, perimeter. So when we meet with our, my generation of people, you know what's the major topic? What's the number one topic? Retirement. AARP, insurance, medical, uh, all these things, you know, you know it's, it's fascinating when, that we used to talk about trips, talk about Yosemite, uh, you know bowling, basketball, sports, and now we're talking about, oh I, I, I'm hurting over here, I'm hurting <laughs> over there." and then uh, talking about retirement and all that stuff it's, it's, it's fun it's fun. How do we spend our time is very important. Let me just, just, just give you one little bit about this thing here I want to talk about. The average life in the uh, United States is 78.7 now, right? And in 2010, there's a survey came out. The average American spent 19% of their life in retirement. 19% of your life is spent in retirement. Whoa, that's a big chunk of your life. How do you... S- how do you plan to spend that? Vegas in one weekend? Tahoe in the next? Or Paris? Or Australia? Japan? Well, I'm glad you have all the money and time to go do that stuff. But you need to rethink about how you use the resources God given you. Just because you work hard doesn't mean that you can just Use the money and time any which way you want. Working hard is mandated by God, so it's nothing special about that. Okay, I need to move on to the third point, the response. We see the people, their repentance and their action. Yep, like I said before, I'm glad Super Bowl is not today. The people's repentance, now we don't see the word repentance in the scripture, but we can actually see it in action. You see, repentance, the true mark of repentance is submission, and the true mark of submission is action. So therefore, I can come to the conclusion that they do repent because they start working. The Bible said they obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai, the prophet, and the people fear the Lord, verse 12, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, verse 14. So they obeyed, they came, they worked, and they feared the Lord. Now, that got to be a repentance somewhere in there. And there's more evidence. Verse 14, God stirred up their spirit. Like I said before, The word stir basically means arouse or awaken. Zechariah 4.1, And the angel who talked with me came again and woke me, stirred me, like a man who is awakened out of his sleep. So when we are slumbered, when we are deceived, when we are bound by sin, attracted by the world, we need a wake-up call. God does that. God does that through his Holy Spirit. God does that through his Holy Scripture. This is why reading your Scripture is so important. Not not only reading, let, let, let me rephrase it. Studying God's Word is so important. Not just reading it. Now, for the returning Jews, their action is what? Rebuilding the temple. Now, let me just move on to us. What do we do? What do we do? If you find yourself in the condition of inverted priorities, what do you do? Let me give you three suggestions to consider. Number one, we must deliberately and continually put God's house above our priority. Now, to the Jews back then, God's house obviously is the temple. To us, it's not the temple. We're not here to build physically a temple, but we are building a spiritual temple. This spiritual temple is basically God's people. That would mean that we need to become healthy ourselves before we can actually help others to become healthy and become uh, 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 the builder of this temple. So that's number one. We must deliberately and continually put God's house above our priority. Number two, to put God's house above material prosperity require a constant self-evaluation in the fear of God. A lot of people do self-evaluation, even the non-believers do. But they're missing one piece of the most important element is in the fear of God. The Lord twice said, consider your way. That means that we have to pause long enough to stop and think about this person, his relationship or her relationship with God. Now, I actually have a whole bunch of questions that I can give you. I'm just going to run it through really quickly without dwelling on it. The number one question, you can use it as a thought starter. How are you spending your time? Okay? How are you spending your time? Number two, how are you spending your money? Which is really God's money. What are your goals? What are your goals? Number four, what do you think about the most? What do you think about the most? Number five, I thought this is pretty interesting. I copied this question from one of the pastors in one of the sermons. Who are your heroes or models? I look at some of the uh, YouTube sometimes. And find girls who actually alter the faces so that it can look like some movie stars? Well, they have their idols, they have the you know, heroes. Who are your heroes? Who are your friends? Whom do you spend like to spend time with? Number seven, how do you spend your leisure time, which is also including your retirement? And does your leisure time reflect and affect your devotion to Jesus Christ? Undergirding all these questions should be the fear of God. If there's no fear of God, you can evaluate till the kingdom come, nothing will happen. Because God's not in it. If God's not in it, your plan doesn't work. Now, I want to share with you one passage um, at this point, because I find it really, really interesting and also very helpful. That is First 1 Peter 1.17. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile. Peter is calling our life on earth exile. Do we actually see that? Do we actually have that mindset? While we're living on this earth, we're actually in exile? This is not our permanent dwelling place. I hope that this concept will wake us up to hang on to things loosely. So when God says, can I have it? You say, yes, you may have it. I remember my grandchildren when they were young and also observing other little kids. They hold on to the candies, the toys, really tight, right? You ask them, can I have a piece? No! No! I don't want us to do that to God. God gives us a lot of good things. Enjoy it while you can. Hang on to them loosely. So when God said, Can I have it back? You say, Yes, God, you can have it back. Finally, we need to cultivate a mindset and conviction that to please and glorify God is our priority. In other words, set your life goal to please God and glorify God. I want to recommend you two books. One, the first one is called The Golden Booklet of the True Christian Life by John Calvin. You can get it on uh, Amazon, like six, seven books. Use one, three (laughs) dollars. You you ought to read this book. Uh, This book actually is incorporated into his Magnum opus, Institution. And in that institution, book three, chapter six to ten, you can find the same book. In other words, that book is in institution. So if you have a copy of institution, you don't need to buy this book; it's in it. Josh is laughing. You know what that means, right, Josh? Institution, right? This and the word is so tiny, you need a magnifying glass to read it. Now, uh, the second book is by John Piper. God's Passion for His Glory. Excellent, excellent book. In it, it contained Jonathan Edwards, The End of, for Which God Created the World. Um, excellent book to read. Now, what disturbed me, brothers and sisters, is this. Is that not only we are indifferent to the glory of God, what disturbed me is that we are indifferent to this indifferent. Because our indifference to God does not disturb us. That's the problem. You should be constantly kneeling, asking for God's forgiveness for my indifferent in His glory. And if you don't have this passion about your incapability to glorify God, you should be sad all the time. So, our aim, also our existence, is to glorify God. I want to paraphrase what John Piper says. When can we glorify God? Only when we absolutely delight at the fact that God is our only satisfaction. So what is your priority? In closing, several events came to my attention lately that I felt really burdened. A few weeks ago, Pastor Wang Yi in China received nine years jail sentence for proclaiming the gospel. Pastor Raymond Cole was kidnapped in Malaysia by some authority back in February 13, 2017, and nobody has seen him since, nor his car. There was like three black big USV drove up to him. Just like just like any movies, you know? And then people got out, broke the glass, pulled him out, pulled him into the SUV. And one of them got in and drove his car away. The whole thing happened in like a minute or two. Nobody's seen him since. A Nigerian pastor was kidnapped in January 2020. And the news just came out. He was beheaded. A 20-year-old Nigerian college student, a Christian, was executed recently by a child ISIS soldier. This is 2020 now. I'm not talking about two centuries ago. Christians. What made these Christians willing to give up their lives for Jesus? Today, this moment, I think the better question to ask is what is keeping you from giving your life to Jesus? Let's pray. Father God, forgive us if we have put you aside as if you were an outdated toy. Give us the desire to live thy will. Let us learn to give you the ultimate priority in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.